Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Please to join with me in your Bibles uh, to the uh, fifth chapter of Leviticus. We're going to begin our scripture in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. And today we continue with, I think, part six of our ongoing study in the book of Leviticus, uh, restructuring life, reordering the world, a pretty ambitious title for a study in the book of Leviticus, wouldn't you say? And yet what we are discovering together is that this exploration of this ancient and seemingly irrelevant text is anything but irrelevant but is emerging as one that speaks to our truest, most contemporary issues as people of faith right here and right now. So we're going to begin in chapter 5 in verse 14 in just a moment. And as you make your way there, I invite the rest of our church family in the Family Life Center to join us in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. And we welcome also, don't we, those who are tuning in from far away, and are a part of our extended church family elsewhere today in this exciting study. Hey, listen, before we read uh, the text for the day, i got to tell you something interesting that's happened. You know, I I told you that I've got a friend here in Johns Creek, and he's the rabbi at uh, Congregation Door to Meet. And he and I get together about once a week, and we study, and he corrects my Hebrew, and and we have a great time. We've become uh, pretty good friends. Well, he's in Israel right now. He took a group of, of uh, people to Israel, and uh, so I was texting him, and he was texting me a couple days ago. How's it going? How's your trip? He said, yeah, it's great. I said, hey, would you do me a favor and, and just send us a, something? And so he recorded this message for you, members of Johns Creek Baptist Church. Take a peek at uh, Rabbi Ottenstein. Hello, my friends. This is Rabbi Jordan Ottenstein of Congregation Dor Tamid. I'm standing here in the northern palace of Masada in the Judean desert with the Dead Sea behind me. Just wanting to say to you, have a great Sabbath. Blessings to you all. And I know that in your congregation in Johns Creek, just as we hear it here, we hear the call of Vayikra, of God calling to us each day and each week, asking us to be better people. So I say to you, May God give strength to all of us and bless us with peace. Amen. Amen. Isn't that great? Yeah. What a gift. What a blessing uh, to, to receive from our, our friend uh, and by extension his congregation here as we study Vayikra. It sounds even better having a rabbi say it, doesn't it? So with no further uh, ado, let's, wait, let's wade deeply into the waters of Vayikra. Uh, chapter 5, verse 14, and we hear these words. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally, does anyone remember the word for sinning unintentionally last week? Bishgaga. I still love that word. 
When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect, and of the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. I think that we should change the name of our offering to uh, the sanctuary shekel. It just, maybe not, okay. It is a guilt offering. They must make restitution for what they have failed to do. Interesting. In regard to the holy things, pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it all to the priest. The priest will make atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering and they will be forgiven. If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they do not know it and they are guilty and will be held responsible, they are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of proper value. And this way the priest will make atonement for them for the wrong they have committed unintentionally. And they will be forgiven. They will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, if anyone sins and is, check out the word order, and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit when they sin in any of these ways and they realize their guilt they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property that they found or whatever it was that they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full. Add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, in this way, or one without defect and of proper value, and in this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. The reading of the sacred word. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Amen. In 1997, there was an auction in Denver, Colorado. A Denver, Colorado, an auction that was set up as a benefit for hospice. And it was a celebrity auction and several Big-time names were there, and several big-time celebrities had donated items to this auction. There was a woman there named Robin Coors who was ecstatic because when she heard these words, going once, going twice, sold, and he slams the gavel against the desk, it meant that she won the bid and paid $7,000 for the item that she had bid. $7,000 for a gorgeous 
porcelain mask that had been hand-painted by John Denver, the singer, just, just a few weeks before his tragic plane crash that took his life. She was ecstatic. $7,000, and she, she went up to receive the item, and the auctioneer, true story, uh, hands her this gorgeous porcelain mask and drops it on the floor, and it shatters in a thousand pieces. And everybody did what you just did and gasped. He can't recreate it. He, but you know what she did? She didn't insist that she get her money back, and she didn't just walk away mad. You know what she did? She scooped up the pieces and took them home and arranged the broken pieces of this porcelain mask around pictures of and albums of John Denver and created a beautiful display out of something that had been broken. I want you to acknowledge with me today Sometimes beautiful things break. And when they break, it is not always the worst thing that could happen. Because there is a kind of beauty that comes to our lives that can only come after brokenness. I think about that story when I read about what we call the guilt offering in Leviticus. Because there is a word that's used again and again in the passage that we just read a moment ago. Again and again we hear the word, if you sin in this way, if you sin, or if you trespass in this way, again and again. It's the same Hebrew word, ma'al. Ma'al is translated in many places, trespass. But that's not really the best translation. The best translation of ma'al is literally to break faith. Do you know that faith really is something that we can break? And according to the ancient text, it's not just that you and I have the ability to break faith, but we have the ability to break faith with God and break faith with one another. Don't forget how beautiful this story starts. It begins in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, with that wonderful word. We heard the rabbi mention it a moment ago. It's the word spoken on the lips of God who trumpets all throughout the cosmos. Vaikra. Draw near, right? To you who are scattered, you ex-slaves, now newly liberated in freedom, you who don't know how to order your life, Vaikra, draw near to me. There's nothing more beautiful than that kind of call. This story begins with beauty and promise and faith. But God knows, and we're not five chapters in, that something that begins with great strength and beauty and faith can break. And I just want to know if you know what's that like. Do you know what it's like to break faith? I mean, maybe you have come to church today and maybe you almost didn't come. <laughs> maybe you almost didn't come, but on some when you said, you know, maybe there's something that will be said or sung or thought or shared that will make a difference because I know that I did a thing 
and I said a thing, or maybe I didn't do a thing and I didn't say a thing and it has resulted in this wedge between me and God and certainly between me and, and this person or these people and this wedge, is it feels like something has broken in me. When we break faith, for whatever reason, the gospel that rises up from the book of Leviticus says, when you break faith, don't despair, because this text introduces a God who for the first time on the platform of human history, we're introduced to a God who says, when you blow it, I will not leave you in your brokenness. There will be a pathway for forgiveness and renewal. So today I want to talk about that for just a moment. And typically at this point in the sermon, at the introduction, I give you two or three words to hang on to. Kind of two or three words to help you navigate the sermon and hold on to something as we're moving through. Today, I just want you to know, I just have two. And they're not cute. And they don't rhyme. Because God has put something on my heart today that I want to share, that I want to make sure that we don't mince any words. Because there is a way toward healing. I want to talk today about two things repairing broken faith with God and repairing broken faith with one another. Let's pray together. God, for just the next few moments, we pray that if there is any truth in the possibility that repair can come, that wholeness and beauty can emerge from something broken, we pray that you would demonstrate what that looks like now. For we are leaning in and listening. In Christ's name, amen. Repairing broken faith with God. It really is possible that the thing that started out so beautiful and so filled with joy and hope and satisfaction can break. Let's, let's not depart far from the text that we just read. In the text, I don't know if you picked up on it, but one of the ways that we break faith, according to Leviticus, is there's a recurring phrase in there. The phrase is, when we violate the Lord's holy thing, that's a phrase I want you to just either jot down or etch it in your heart, your mind. When we violate the Lord's holy things. Now, for just a moment, I need to tell you what it meant then in order to leap forward and propose what it means right now. What it meant then. The holy things basically meant furniture. I mean, it basically meant that space in which they worship. Do you remember when we were doing Exodus and we went uh, about several months ago now through Exodus and there were chapter after chapter after chapter of detailed instruction at the end of the book of Exodus that described the construction of the tabernacle. This, this tent that really was a kind of concentric formation of tents. There's a tent within a tent within a tent. And it was believed to be the the holy dwelling place of God among mortals. It's, it's the place where God dwelt with human beings. And the construction of that holy space was so deliberate, the details were so 
ah, filled with Easter eggs, remember that? Where every phrase, every number, patterns of sevens, every nuance in the instructions about creating this sacred space, the holy things of the Lord, are meant to provoke the reader and the listener to think about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the creation of the world. I think we got kind of a strobe light going on here. The disco ball is about to come down in a minute, and it's about to get real. No, not really. Don't forget that in the construction, in the construction of the tabernacle, we said that all the materials that were used were arranged, and we used this word in kind of a feng shui. It began with lesser materials and materials that were of low value that moved higher and higher in what we called gradations of value until we got to that inner sanctum where God was believed to abide. And so with gradations of holiness, you approach God. So on the outside of this great, uh, oh, this great curtain, you entered into the outer court and the first thing you came to was the great altar the altar where all of these sacrifices take place, just a few meters beyond the great altar, closer to the holy space, is the great laver where, where the priests would wash their hands and prepare to enter one set of curtains into what we call the sanctuary or the outer sanctum. And inside the outer sanctum, there, there was a great candelabra, a great menorah with seven candles. There's the seven again made of the finest hammered gold. And across from that, the table of showbread with stacks of bread, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes. And just beyond that, there was an altar of incense constantly burning before the Lord and a great veil. And beyond the great veil, the holy of holies, a place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And on top of that Ark, made of the finest hammered gold, was the mercy seat. Of God, And on the inside, fragments of the Ten Commandments, a little remnant of manna and Aaron's blooming staff. And in gradations of holiness, it's arranged with deliberate intentionality. Why? Because in that space, it was no joke what they were up to. It's worship. And in the context of worship, they really actually had the audacity to believe that when they were in worship, they were in the company of the Holy One of the universe. And in being in close proximity with the Holy One of the universe, the things they did in worship were meant to do something very specific. All of the things said, all of the things done, the places where you stood, the, the things that you saw and heard and smelled, they all were meant to remind you of creation. And we have already said the reason being because in worship, everything you see and hear and do and say and pray ought to somehow recreate you. That in the holy sacred space or in today's language, the Lord's holy things were set up so that we might partner with God in the ongoing creation of the world. So when you defile the things of the Lord, according to Leviticus 5, it wasn't just that you knocked over a candlestick. When you polluted the holy space, it wasn't just that you behaved badly. But our sin that pollutes the holy space of Leviticus 
actually had the capacity to sabotage the very thing God was hoping to be up to with people, and that is the ongoing recreation of the world. And the same is possible for you and me. Why does any of this matter to you and me? Because, beloved, you are the sanctuary. You are the the tabernacle. All through the New Testament, you are referred to. You, the believer in Christ, you are referred to as God's holy temple, the resting place of the Most High. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read it this way. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That's you. Or in 1 Corinthians 6, we hear these words, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Well, why does any of that matter? Because if you truly are the sacred space of the Most High, then it's possible for you and me to defile that space as well. I mean, the glorious good news is that, yeah, the ancients believed that God dwelt at that location with that zip code in that particular address at the back of a room in a particular tent. The glorious good news that we proclaim is, no, no, you are the tent. (laughs) And, And Christ abides in you. That's the good news. But in order for there to be good news, there's first a little bad news. (laughs) And that is, if you are the sanctuary, the dwelling place of the Most High, then you, just like our ancient sisters and brothers in faith, you can pollute the inner sanctum of the soul just as readily as any of the first listeners. That you and I can do that if we fill our lives with toxic people, if we are driven by ego and pride, if, oh, if we cram our calendars so that we are so busy that we have no time or space to make room for God, then we have polluted the inner sanctum of the tabernacle of us. If we spend all of our money in some way to to satisfy a kind of ego satisfaction with the accumulation of more and more and more, and then we suddenly have no resources to spend on the things of God in this kingdom, And somehow we have, in every conceivable way, just as our ancient brothers and sisters have done, we have defiled the holy things of God because you are the holy things of God. But in Leviticus, the good news is there's a way out. So he gives instructions to those who are listening about the guilt offering. He says, here's what you must do. You bring a ram, you add on a fifth, and, and you'll be good to go. By the way, that's a fifth of money. I know you. You bring a ram and a, a fifth of shekels, silver, and you're good. Now, on the one hand, we look back and say, how primitive. My gosh, why would God do that? That sounds so unfair that God would somehow let them pay God off. Wow, that's not exactly what's going on. Remember that in the context in which we're, we're studying, they were ex-slaves. They, they are ex-slaves. And as ex-slaves, God is attempting to uh, create a new order for their life, right? A new way of existing in the world where there are boundaries and, and there, there are ways to live inside those boundaries and, and ways to recognize when we're living outside of those 
sinful boundaries. And he's trying to create a new way to structure or to order their lives. And they must be taught that when you step outside the newly ordered life of faith, when you ma'al, break faith, it'll cost you something. It'll cost you something. And shouldn't it? I mean, here's, here's the glorious news that you and I get to come in here and lift up and proclaim every time we gather. That in Jesus Christ, the work of the cross and resurrection paid for something that you and I could never pay. We cannot earn our forgiveness. We cannot somehow uh, do a song and dance or bring a, a shekel of silver in such a capacity that God would change God's mind about us. We believe that it's all grace. Amen? But the truth of the matter is it still must cost something. Because if we, like our ancient brethren and sistren, if we say yes to a newly ordered way of life, if Christ's grace has poured over us and we recognize, my gosh, I've been made new, so I say yes to this new rhythm, yes to this new structured life, and yes to this new order and living in Christ, then when we step outside of that newly ordered life, the truth of the matter, it must cost something to step back. And what do I mean? Well, if I have filled my life with so much activity that I make no time to worship him or pray with him daily or devote my time in reading sacred scripture. If I don't practice my faith daily because I just don't have the time, I'm so busy, well, then it will cost me when I have to say to them, I'm sorry we can't join you. We're too busy this week, and I have to cut something out. See, that's a cost. It means, yes, I'd love to serve on this board and it's a great privilege, but honestly, if I do that, something else will have to go, and it'll be my family, or it'll be my job, and so I really, I, I'm going to have to say no, and it may cost you being asked back to the dance. It may cost ego, it may cost pride, it may cost you something, but it will cost. Didn't the crucified one say something about this, if any, wish to be my disciples? They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow. Forgiveness is possible. It is possible to restore the thing that had been broken, but it will cost something. So maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, but I'm, I'm, we're good. God and, and, and I, we're fine. We seem to be clicking along just fine. But maybe you have something that is broken faith with a neighbor. Maybe you've experienced a broken faith with a brother or a sister. And the illusion is that we can come in here and somehow be fine with God and not fine with our neighbors. Do you, do you, do you remember what God was trying to do with the people of Israel. See, this moves us to the second part of our, of our time together. Repairing broken faith with one another. 
See, when he called them out of Egypt, and he's there at the foot of, of Sinai, and he says to them, I've got a plan for you. This is God. I've got a plan in Exodus 19, verse 6. We hear this, this plan. He says in Exodus 19, verse 6, You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. You will be different. In fact, here is one of the ways that you will be different. You will attempt to demonstrate your love for me, but I will require that you demonstrate your love for me in the way that you treat each other. Unheard of. So right after chapter 19 comes chapter 20. Let me check my math on that. Yeah, 20. And in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments and the first three, we studied these at great depth several months ago. The first three are devoted to the love of God. The last six are devoted to the love of people. And that number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, means that when we worship, worship becomes the linchpin, that sacred space in which we are reminded how to love God and we are reminded about the call to love others. And in worship, we begin to recognize that the love of God and the love of people are inextricably bound to one another. You can't love God and not love people. 1 John chapter 4 in the New Testament reads this way. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and their sisters also. See, you and I begin to be lured into the, the, oh, the seductive belief that we can somehow spiritually express our love for God and not be on the hook for loving people. And the text says, no, that's my all. You are breaking faith. Maybe the most demonstrative example of how the love of God and the love of people are so intertwined that sinning against one is sinning against another is found on the lips of our Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, these, these are the convicting words of Jesus in Matthew 5. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Another, no, before we move on, leave your gift there. In other words, before you make the sacrifice, leave it there before you go to Sunday school, before you come into worship, before you say yes to a mission trip or to volunteer in a ministry, before you do anything to somehow demonstrate your love for God, leave it alone and first Go be reconciled to your brother and sister. This, the verse continues. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Could any, that is just, could anything be more convicting? That the Son of God was of the opinion that it is more important for you to reconcile broken relationships 
than it is to come into worship. The sequence matters. And do you know where he got it? Leviticus. Jesus wasn't making anything up. That wasn't new to Jesus. That is straight up Leviticus chapter 6. What we read just a moment ago. When you have ma'al sinned against God by deceiving or wronging your brother or sister, then here is what you are to do, the instructions say. And he gives all kinds of examples. If you have taken something from them, if you found something lost and it didn't belong to you, but he didn't say anything about it. If you're not standing up and speaking truth when it's necessary, then here's what you must do. When you realize that it has happened. Now see, I love that phrase in Leviticus chapter 6. Because up till now, it's all bishgaga. It's all bishgaga. We can sin and not know it. We can be stepping outside the boundaries of the ordered life and not know it. But when you wake up, and Leviticus doesn't seem to suggest, it demands that in worship, there are things that you do and say and sing and smell and think that are meant to provoke an awareness in you about the ways that you're doing life. Worship, with all of its rituals, ancient or modern, all of its rituals that we practice in worship are meant to somehow cause us to do a relationship audit. Where we come in here and the things we see and hear and say and think, they're not meant to somehow make us meditate upon the ways that the world has done us wrong, but rather, how have we contributed to the brokenness of the world. Jesus said, look, if you're sitting in worship and, and you realize a brother or sister has something against you, not if you realize how, how angry you are about your brother and sister, but if you are sitting here and something happens in worship that provokes an awareness that you've said something wrong, you've done something wrong, then drop what you're doing and go make it right. Worship is intended to evoke and stoke and provoke a holy awareness. When we come in here, we, we do things that are meant to somehow ask ourselves, am I in alignment with the way in which he has demonstrated my life should go? Or am I in any way out of alignment? And in the places where I am out of alignment, especially in relationships, bring me back in. And the sequence is just even more important than that. In Leviticus, it says, leave your, your gift before the altar and go and pay recompense, pay a restitution to the one you've wronged. And after you've made that right, then you come and you make your gift of worship before the Lord. And in so doing, you will be forgiven. Beloved, what would, what would it cost you to do a relationship audit? To sit here right now, I mean, even while I'm talking, and ask, God, show me in my heart someone who I have wronged. And for the most part, I feel like I do pretty well. I serve, I give, I, I, I do my life in such a way as to be in service of other people. But if there is anything that I have done or said that in some way 
has broken faith with you because of the way I've treated her or him. Then lead me in the way everlasting. See, we, we can break faith with God and break faith with people. And somebody here today may need to offer that kind of prayer. God, I feel like I have broken faith with you. And I recognize now, this is maybe a prayer that somebody needs to pray. I recognize now that my breaking faith with you, I recognize that you have tried to create a sacred space in the, uh, the inner sanctum of my soul for you to abide. You have wanted me to create space and time to give my energies and my life to you, but I've so crowded my inner sanctum that it's like I've knocked over the holy furniture and you can't find your way around in there. And I recognize it's not just that I've created a problem and that we have some kind of a, a spiritual problem with each other. I realize that I have sabotaged the capacity for you to actually re, recreate the world through me. So help me unclutter, help me purge so that I might make space for you. Or it may be that your other prayer is this, you know, God, I, I, I make space for you I make time and space and energy. In my mind, there's nothing more important than that. But now today I recognize that every time I negate someone's value, every time I talk down to someone, every time I have an attitude about this person or these people, every time I mistreat a brother or a sister, I recognize I am actually sabotaging the very thing you're wanting to set up in me because you're wanting to set up the same thing in them. So show me what, what I must sacrifice. Must I sacrifice my pride? Maybe my ego? Show me what to say and what to do that you may still recreate the world through me. Let's pray. God, in this moment, um, well, even... Even as our heads are bowed and our eyes are, are even, even if, as we are fixed in our attention of you right now, we pray that you would reveal in any of us the space that needs to be made for you. Reveal in any of us the face of someone whom we have wronged that must be repaired. Even in these quiet moments, we pray that you would muster within us the, the courage to allow you to restore the faith that we have broken. And we will cling with both hands to the promise of Leviticus and the promise of your risen son that we can be forgiven and life can be new and the world can be remade. We pray that in Christ's name.